There might not be a week that goes by in ministry where I don't hear a believer express something along the lines of, I'm not sure I'm going to make it home. Uh, Perhaps you you have that feeling. Perhaps you have that feeling, I'm not sure I'm going to make it home to heaven. Maybe that's been your experience even this week. Maybe you've dragged yourself through another week. You've dragged yourself to another Sunday. Maybe you've, you've dragged yourself here this morning. And maybe you've had the thought, I'm not sure I'm going to make it. Here's what I want to convince you of this morning from God's Word. The doctrine of Jesus' ascension and session assures God's people that we will make it home. I want to convince you that not only has Jesus ascended into heaven and sat down on His throne, but that He did so to bring you, Christian, all the way home. Your destiny is not in doubt. If you are in Christ, you're going to make it home. If you're looking for for one sentence that summarized the the doctrine of the creed that we're looking at together this morning, and the thrust of this sermon, this is it. Jesus returns to His throne to bring you all the way home. Jesus returns to His throne to bring you all the way home. That's what we're going to think about together as we continue this occasional doctrinal series through various phrases in the Apostles' Creed. So, if you're using one of the Bibles provided, I want you to turn to the passage where we're going to begin to unpack this idea. Turn, go ahead and turn to Luke 24, verses 50 to 53. That's where we're going to begin our study. It's on page 855 of the Bibles provided. There's just a little bit of background on the Apostles' Creed. We already thought about it a little bit this morning. But it has been used by Christians to confess our faith in the triune God for nearly 1,800 years. It's the the, the basics, the ABCs of the Christian faith. It's a summary of of, of what we believe. It was not so much written by Jesus' apostles as it was written to reflect the teaching of Jesus' apostles. And the goal was to put into words a succinct summation of the apostles' teaching concerning the Christian faith. So today, we're looking at the words, He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And what we're really going to do is examine the biblical underpinnings of that phrase. So I don't intend to preach the creed to you. I intend to preach uh, the Bible, which supports that declaration that Jesus has ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. I'm preaching the doctrine of the Bible that the creed seeks to summarize. So that's why we're going to look at Luke chapter 24, verses 50 to 53, and Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 11, and other important passages which teach us about Jesus' ascension and heavenly session, and and its implication for our lives. So since the Apostles' Creed is something of the ABCs of the Christian faith, we'll look at the ABCs, the basics of Jesus' ascension and session. I think you should be able to find an outline provided there in your bullets, and I hope that'll help you follow along. But you, but you see it there, the, the, the three headings for, for today's sermon. Three points, ABCs. Number one, the acts of Jesus' ascension and session. The acts of Jesus' ascension and session. And that's what we're going to look at, the, the two discrete acts, one of Jesus returning to heaven, and then Jesus sitting down to rule. That's the, the A, the acts of Jesus' ascension and session. And now for the B. The background of Jesus' ascension and session. So under this heading, under the background, we're going to consider the need for Jesus' ascension and session as announced by the Old Testament, anticipated by the Old Testament, and assured us, assured of us in the New Testament. That's the B, the background. And then for the C, the comforts 
of Jesus' ascension and session. And there we're especially going to think about what Jesus' ascension and session secures for us. What, what difference does it make that Jesus has returned to the throne and that he is ruling and reigning? What does that mean for us? What, what difference should it make in our lives? That's what we're going to look at together this morning. Those uh, three points. And, and I'm going to cause us to turn, Lord willing, in our Bibles all over the place. Uh, so if you have one of those inserts, you'll notice that it's underlined and there's a page number. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that should help you find place to place. I'll announce them along the way. But I, I do want you to be good Bereans. I want you to look at your Bibles and ask yourselves, are the things that he's saying, are they true and are they in God's word? So I want you to, to turn to those various places with me. All right, so we're going to begin with A, right? The, the acts of Jesus' ascension and session. And here we're, we're turning to the Gospel of Luke. And, and as we prepare to read, we need to remember that we're near the end of Luke's Gospel. Luke has been chronicling Jesus' life, his ministry, his teaching, his death, his resurrection. Uh, and, and here we are really toward the very end of Luke's Gospel. And in Luke 24, in this chapter alone, we're reminded that the disciples, they were perplexed by the empty tomb. I mean, Jesus' resurrection is hard to believe. It's not every day that a man gets up from the dead. So, so they're perplexed. We're also reminded that Jesus' resurrection was predicted by the Old Testament. And Jesus, in this chapter, he gives his disciples convincing proofs that he really was alive. He, he ate with them. He, he showed them his hands and his feet. And having proven his resurrection, Jesus, then he prepared his disciples to go and proclaim his resurrection. And so, this is how Luke's gospel concludes with Jesus' ascension. He parts company with his disciples. Take a look at verse 50 there. Read uh, Luke 24, verse 50 and 53 to 53. As he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Well, here is the first of two of Luke's historical, historic accounts of Jesus' ascension. And what we're already seeing is amazing. We're seeing that Jesus' return to heaven was visible and physical. His disciples saw him, him in his resurrected body, return up to glory. He was carried up, the text says, up into heaven. And, and one important implication of this is that when we take the Lord's Supper together at the end of the service, Lord willing... We are not partaking of Jesus' physical body. Jesus' physical body is in heaven. In other words, contrary to the Roman Catholic Church and contrary to uh, our brothers and sisters in the Lutheran churches, contrary to their claims, Jesus' physical body is not magically or mysteriously transformed in the elements of uh, the bread and the fruit of the vine. Uh, that would be to fragment and fracture the body of the Lord Jesus, which is in heaven. Though Jesus in his human nature is not physically present with us in the Lord's Supper, he is really and spiritually present with us in accordance with his divine nature and as mediated by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. But, but notice in our text, in Luke chapter 24, verse 50, Luke's gospel, it shows us that Jesus blessed his disciples before he returned to heaven and that they blessed him with praise after he returned to heaven. I think this shows us what our attitude should be toward Jesus' ascension. Our heart should be filled with praise. We shouldn't be disappointed that Jesus is ruling and reigning. We might long for his return, 
But it is for our good, as we're going to, to see through our study, that Jesus has returned and that he's reigning even now. Well, we've considered, what we've considered in Luke's gospel is confirmed in Luke's second account in the book of Acts, in his second historical account. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verses 4 to 11. That's on page 909 of the Bibles provided. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 to 11. Now, if you've been with us in our studies in the book of Acts, then you'll know that Acts, it's the continuation of Luke's gospel. In Acts, Luke is chronicling the ongoing ministry of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ through His disciples by the power of His Holy Spirit. And in Acts, though Jesus is physically absent, according to His human nature, He is personally and powerfully present, according to His divine nature and by His Holy Spirit. And in these verses that we're about to read, you'll see the recap and the overlap that the beginning of Acts has with the end of Luke's Gospel. Like he did in his gospel, Luke reminds us that Jesus prepared his disciples for mission, and then he parted from them. Follow along now as I read Acts chapter 4, verses, sorry, Acts chapter 1, verses 4 to 11. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times of the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now notice here, like his account in the book of Luke, or in the gospel of Luke, here in Acts, we're reminded that Jesus' ascension, his return to heaven, was visible and physical. Jesus' resurrected body ascended into heaven. And heaven is an actual place. Not only did, did Jesus himself move in an upward direction, thus showing us that he's physically going somewhere, but as we'll consider later, Jesus told his disciples in John 14 that he was going away to prepare a place for them. Not only that, but created beings, such as angels, the scriptures tell us, dwell there. So when Jesus returned to heaven, he returned to an actual place. And the act of Jesus' ascension, it was, it was that event whereby the resurrected Savior, who was fully God and fully man, returned to heaven. And upon his return to heaven, you notice the creed says he sat down at the right hand of God. And that's the second act which theologians refer to as Jesus' session. In other words, Jesus did not just return to heaven in his ascension, he went to reign in heaven at God's right hand. He did not return to rest, but to rule. And both the creed and more, more importantly, the scriptures teach us this. So if you look back, if you have that insert in your bulletin, you'll notice that line in the creed um, where, it, where it refers to Jesus sitting at God's right hand refers to God the Father Almighty. And in fact, that's a repetition of something that's already occurred in the creed. God the Father has already been called Almighty. So, so why is it that at this point the creed repeats that phrase, that idea that God the Father is almighty? 
I think it's because it means to underscore Jesus' rule and reign. Remember, when we looked at uh, the first phrase, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We recall that God the Father not only possesses all power to make heaven and earth, to be the author of all of creation, but that because he is the author of all creation, he has all authority over creation. And and so Jesus here is, is connected with this authority of the Father. He is being entrusted with all authority to rule as he sits at the Father's right hand. That's what Jesus himself said in his commission, didn't he? In Matthew chapter 28, uh, verse 18, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So, Jesus, in the posture of sitting, in the place of sitting, at God's right hand, and the person that Jesus sits next to, God the Father Almighty, all communicate Jesus' royal rule. Jesus sitting at God's right hand indicates his sovereign session as King and Lord. Now, if you flip forward in Acts to Acts chapter 5, verses 27 to 32, you'll see this for yourself. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 913. Peter and the apostles, they've been arrested for preaching Jesus contrary to the high priest's wishes. And as we read, notice what Peter says about Jesus' resurrection and exaltation. Notice how it's connected to Jesus' authority as leader and Savior. Take a look at Acts chapter 5, verse 27, beginning there, reading to verse 32. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them. So the apostles are being questioned, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. In these verses, notice that Peter connects Jesus' resurrection to his ascension and rule. And in verse 31, Peter, he tells the council that God has exalted Jesus to his right hand to be leader and savior. And that term leader can also be translated judge. In fact, in the Greek Septuagint, it was um, the term used for the judges in the Old Testament. So the idea is that Jesus has royal authority to rule. Peter's telling these men, Jesus is in charge. Jesus is the king of all creation. Jesus is sitting at God's right hand and that signals his sovereignty. And his superiority, even over the angels. So Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 tells us that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You see, God, he accepted Jesus' sacrifice, his work of atonement and purification for the sins of his people. It was done. And so he sat down and he was given authority to rule above and over everything in heaven and on earth. And the Apostle Peter, he gives us this similar idea in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. And he says this about Jesus. He has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So the, the act of Jesus' session is that event 
whereby Jesus, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty to rule over all creation. So, Jesus, he has ascended into heaven, and he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's great, right? But, but did he really need to do that? Did Jesus really need to go to heaven? I mean, wouldn't it be awesome if Jesus were still with us here now, walking around, uh, teaching us practically and personally about how we should live and follow him? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Was it really necessary for him to physically and visibly depart from his disciples? Well, our Savior has a better plan than we do. And he knows our needs better than we do. And he really did need to return to his throne in order to bring us all the way home. And in order to understand this, we need to go back and consider the background of Jesus' ascension and session. So let's turn and consider our second point. The background of Jesus' ascension and session. And this is the B of the ABCs of Jesus' ascension and session. The background of Jesus' ascension and session goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. So cast your minds back to Genesis chapters 1 to 3. In fact, go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, if you're using one of the Bibles provided, Genesis 1 is on page 1. Find, find verse 26 when you get there. Now, as we begin to look at these opening chapters of the Bible, uh, I, I hope that this is what jumps into your mind as you, you can clearly see the need for Jesus' return to the Father. Jesus needed to ascend to God's presence and rule in God's presence precisely because that is what humanity lost in the fall of Adam. When Adam sinned, that's what we lost. We lost God's presence. That's what we're going to see in these first three chapters. So there in verse 26, we're reminded of chapter 1, reminded earlier in the chapter that God made the world and everything that's in it. Then we get this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. We read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them rule, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Notice that word dominion. It, it slipped in my mind. I said rule. And that's because it actually has connotations of, of royalty and rule. God meant for, for man to rule over creation as a faithful king. Now, now flip over to Genesis chapter 2 and find verse 15. Genesis 2 takes a closer look at what God was doing in making the world and all that is in it. And then in verse 15 we read this. Then the Lord Yahweh took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. You notice those words work and keep? Those are words which will be used to describe the priests in Israel as the Old Testament unfolds. So not only was man to rule over creation as king... But he was also supposed to serve as a priest in God's presence. And that was what the garden was. It was God's presence where, where God lived and dwelt with his people. And just so you know, men, by the way, this is what our, our brother uh, David Schrock is going to unpack in our men's retreat in just a couple of weeks. He's going to unpack this idea of priesthood. Anyway, go back to verse 16 of chapter 2 and notice how the text keeps moving on. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying... You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And this puts us on notice, doesn't it? Man would have lived in God's presence forever if he perfectly served God 
as an obedient priest and king. But, but if you pass over to Genesis chapter 3, you'll see clearly in verse 6 that they disobeyed the Lord. And as a result, they faced God's just judgment and were thrust out of God's presence. Look at the end of Genesis chapter 3. Look at verse 24. He, that's God, he drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and all mankind descending from him have been barred from God's presence due to our sin. And we need a way back in. We need a new Adam who will lead us through the flaming sword of God's wrath. And so, so that we can serve in God's presence as royal priests. So, so how can we return to God's presence? Well, before Adam was thrust out of God's presence, where he was thrust out of the garden, he was given a promise. Do you see it in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3? Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Here is the seed of a promise that will grow in the Old Testament. Here God promises Adam that one day, a son, really we come to learn God's son, will defeat sin and the serpent, Satan, and lead God's people back. This promise, it grows with Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. And in fact, we're given more, more light is shed on this promise as the Old Testament develops. In Genesis 17, verse 6, we're told that kings will come from Abraham's line. So this son, who's been promised in Genesis 3.15, he's also going to be a king. And, and in fact, in, in 2 Samuel 7, David is told that the promised one, the Messiah, will come from his line and will reign upon his throne forever. But, but there's a problem. The Old Testament has been really unpacking for us all the way through. David has Adam's sin. And so do all of his sons. Kings who reign upon his throne, it, it turns out they're filled with sin too. In the books of Kings and Chronicles, this is the crying need. We need a king who perfectly serves God. A king who is David's son from David's line, son of Abraham, but who also, it turns out, must be David's Lord. And so from, from one vantage point, the whole Old Testament shows us that no man walks before God in perfect righteousness. No man personally, perfectly, or perpetually keeps God's law. No man perfectly serves God. There are a bunch of wicked kings, and as it turns out, there are also a bunch of wicked priests in Israel too. So no one can keep from, from sinning. What we keep doing is sinning. So then, who can go into God's presence? Well, Psalm 24 asks and answers that question. We had wonderful meditations on it earlier in the service, but I want us to go there too. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 24. It's on page 458 of the Bibles provided. Since we're all stained with sin, then who can enter into God's presence? When you get to Psalm 24, find verse 3. Read verses 3 to 6 now. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord Yahweh? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and who does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. 
you see the, the anticipation of the return to heaven there in verse 3? But what's the problem that verse 4 introduces? Only those who have clean hands and a pure heart can enter into God's holy place. God is holy, just, and good, and He cannot allow sin to dwell in His presence. So, so only those who have perfectly clean hands and a pure heart can make Him in. Only those who have been perfectly truthful. Is that, is that any of us? No. How can we get back to God? Well, don't be discouraged. Lift up your heads. God has a plan. Keep reading there in Psalm 24, verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord Yahweh, strong and mighty. The Lord Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord Yahweh of hosts. He is the King of glory. So, so who's, who's the King? Who's going to go back into God's presence and lead God's people there? Well, it's none other than God Himself. That's what the psalmist tells us twice in verses 8 and in verse 10. Do you, do you see how this anticipates Jesus' work, His ascension, even His incarnation, and then later His ascension? So, so the eternal Son of God, He comes down, right? John 1, he, he tabernacles among us. He comes from heaven. He takes on human flesh. He remains fully God and fully man. And then he, Jesus, the one who is fully man as David's son and fully God as David's Lord, is the one who will ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place because Jesus has had perfectly clean hands and a pure heart. Jesus never lifted up his soul to what was false and he never swore deceitfully. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us that he knew no sin. Jesus was perfectly sinless. And so he received the blessing from God the Father. And we know that from his resurrection. The, the gates of heaven, the ancient doors opened wide so that the king could come in. That's what happened in Jesus' ascension. Jesus was mighty in battle. He defeated sin and the serpent through his sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. He's the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. He's the one who went under the flaming sword of God's wrath on the cross in order to open the way to heaven. And Jesus, He was raised up from the grave and He was given glory and honor. And He returns to His throne. And this is why the writer of the Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. He says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So Jesus, He's gone into the holy place where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. What does a forerunner do? He goes before you, so you're going to follow after him. So he's, he's gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, he is ruling and reigning in heaven until all of his and our enemies should be made subject to him. That's what Psalm 110 says. So flip forward, keep moving forward in the Psalms to Psalm 110. That's on page 509 of the Bibles provided. Here we have an Old Testament anticipation of Jesus' ascension. Psalm 110, a Psalm of David. The Lord Yahweh says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule 
in the midst of your enemies. Your people will, free, will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Jesus is the ascended priest and king that the Old Testament anticipated and announced, including Psalm 110. In fact, Jesus explicitly claimed as much in his own teaching. So, in other words, the Old Testament anticipated these things, and the New Testament assures us that Jesus has fulfilled these things in his ascension and session. So, in Jesus, it was his own consciousness that he would fulfill these anticipations in the Old Testament. It was Jesus' own consciousness that he would be the second Adam who would restore all that the first Adam lost and bring us to glory. So, in Matthew chapter 22, Verses 41 to 46, Jesus declared that Psalm 110 was about him. And then in Matthew chapter 26, verse 64, Jesus said, You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. And in John chapter 16, verse 28, Jesus said, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And then in John chapter 20, verse 17, Jesus said to Mary, just after his resurrection, she's clinging to him. Jesus says to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Brothers and sisters, uh, this was Jesus' own consciousness and understanding of his life and ministry. He would be stepping into uh, this plan of God and fulfilling filling it out. And it wasn't just Jesus who saw all of these Old Testament anticipations and announcements in his regarding his ascension and session. They were about him. His, his disciples actually saw it too. So turn in your Bibles back to the New Testament to Acts chapter 2 where we find Peter's famous Pentecost sermon. That's on page 910 of the Bibles provided. We're going to read the, the tail end of Peter's sermon. But as we read, notice, notice that Peter touches on both Jesus' ascension, which he calls his exaltation, and Jesus being seated at God's right hand. And it's at that point that Peter quotes Psalm 110, showing that it was about Jesus. So read Acts chapter 2, begin there in verse 32. We'll read to verse 36. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Notice that Peter points out that Jesus has been exalted to the Father's right hand and that he has sent the Holy Spirit. So Jesus has this authority. To send the Holy Spirit. In other words, this, this Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit with the attendant divine phenomena with it is, is the natural consequence of Jesus' death, His resurrection, His ascension, and His 
session. This is what the scriptures spoke of and what Jesus fulfilled in his ministry is what Peter is saying. That's why Peter, he quotes Psalm 110. He reminds his hearers that David did not ascend into the heavens. So he must have been speaking of Jesus. Jesus is seated on his throne at the right hand of the Father. And that means that the Father has made, or better, declared him by his resurrection and reign to be both Lord and Christ. Jesus is both God in the flesh and the Messiah that the Old Testament scriptures anticipated and promised. And in fact, this leads us into one of the consequences, or better yet, the comforts of Jesus' ascension and session. So let's turn now and consider our third point, the comforts of Jesus' ascension and session. And here, uh, we get to apply the benefits of Jesus' ascension and session to our souls. What difference does it make for you, dear Christian, that Jesus has ascended and that he is ruling and reigning even now? Here's the first comfort. As a result of Jesus' ascension and session, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter is saying here in Acts 2. Because Jesus is risen, that he returned, and that he's reigning, we get the comforter. This is only what Jesus himself said in John chapter 16, verse 7. Jesus said this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Brothers and sisters, did you realize that from Jesus' perspective, it is better for him to go away. It is better for him to ascend into heaven instead of staying on earth. It's better for us because we get the Holy Spirit who unites us to Jesus by faith. The Spirit binds us to Christ and so secures our salvation in him. Jesus, in John 16, he goes on to explain in verses 7 to 15 what the Spirit's work will be. In John 16, 8, Jesus said that the Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit is a helper and a defender of the faithful, but he is a prosecuting attorney to the faithless. Jesus also told his disciples that through his spirit, he would guide them into all truth. And so we're beneficiaries of the spirit's special teaching of the disciples because we have their instruction in the scriptures. That's the first comfort from Jesus' ascension and session. We receive the Holy Spirit and all of the blessings and benefits that flow from Jesus through him. Here's the second comfort that we receive as a result of Jesus' ascension and session. We receive gifts for carrying out the ministry and growing into maturity. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 16. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 977. 977, Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 7 to 16. Paul, in these verses, he opens up by, by talking about the grace gifts that Jesus gives. Jesus is generous. And he gives gifts because he has ascended to heaven. Read what Paul says there in verses 7 to 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave, this is what Jesus gives, and he gave the apostles, 
the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may be no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Brothers and sisters, only because Jesus has ascended into heaven could he pour out these gifts to help us grow into manhood and maturity and execute the ministry that he's given to us. It's only because Jesus has ascended into heaven that we can be stable in our doctrine, strong in our defenses, and share in indivisible solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what we have by virtue of Jesus' ascension and session and the gifts that he pours out. So here's here's the third comfort that we receive from Jesus' ascension and session. We receive the promise of a place in heaven. Turn in your Bibles to John 14 and let's read our Savior's Sweet words here. John chapter 14. That's on page 901 of the Bibles provided. Uh, This passage is in Jesus' famous farewell discourse in the Gospel of John. And, And notice what Jesus says about going away and preparing a place for us. See John 14 verses 1 to 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Isn't it interesting that our Savior knows that when He goes, that His disciples' hearts would be troubled. Our hearts are often troubled. But Jesus, he comforts them, he comforts us. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to pre- and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Beloved, hear And believe Jesus' words. He has ascended into heaven in order to prepare a place for you. Why? So that he can take you to himself. Hear your Savior's love for you. He wants you to be with him. He wants you to join him in glory. Because he is risen and reigning, he will make sure that you make it home. Your place in heaven is secured by Him. How? Well, by the fourth comfort that we receive in Jesus' ascension and session. Because Jesus has ascended as in reigning and is reigning in heaven, He ever lives to make intercession for us. He ever lives to make intercession for us. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, we're told that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Listen to these words from Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Do you hear that, brothers and sisters? Jesus is praying for you. The writer to the Hebrews, he says the same thing. So turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 1005. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Now, As I begin to read these verses, I'm going to read Hebrews 7.25 through chapter 8, verse 2. 
I want you to notice how the writer of the Hebrews assures us not only that Jesus is interceding for us, but that he is the very kind of high priest that we need interceding for us. And in, in order to make it home, back into God's presence, into that holy place, Jesus is the very kind of high priest we need. And then at one point, he's actually going to stop just to make sure that we get it. At one point, he's going to stop and he's going to say, now here's the point. We have such a high priest in Jesus. Read Hebrews chapter 7, verses 25 uh, to 8, chapter 2. Cha chapter 8, verse 2. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. In just, just a few minutes, we're going to sing, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Is Jesus your high priest? Is he the one that lived for you, that died for you, that was lifted up from the grave and lifted up to the throne in heaven for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you drawn near to God through Jesus? Have you turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation? Friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the high priest that Christians have. This is the high priest that you can have if you would but turn from your sins and trust in him for your salvation. Friend, if you, if you turn from your sins and you trust in Jesus from salvation, then you have a high priest who ministers in heaven on your behalf. He is praying and pleading the merits of his blood for you before God the Father. Since he occupies such a place of glory and honor and authority, you will make it home to God if you trust in this high priest. Yes, the world is fierce. Yes, the devil is furiously after you. Yes, you fight against your flesh daily. But Jesus has prayed for you that your faith would not fail. That's what he sweetly told Peter in Luke chapter 22, verse 32. It's what Jesus has prayed for us in his high priestly prayer. Listen to what Jesus has prayed for you in John chapter 17, verse 24. Jesus prayed this. Father... I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, listen to how Jesus claims us as his own, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Beloved, because Jesus has ascended, because he is seated, because he is praying for you, you will see his glory. In fact, you will reign with him in glory. This is the fifth comfort flowing from Jesus' ascension and session. We receive a share in Christ's throne. It's staggering. It's a staggering claim. But it's what the scriptures proclaim. 
In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7, Paul says that God is so rich in mercy that He has made us alive together with Christ. Not only that, but in verse 6, Paul says that God has raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. Because we are united to Christ as our head, as His body, we are seated with Him and even now reigning with Him. This reign with Christ, it's been inaugurated, it has begun, but it's not yet been consummated, it's not yet complete. But we can be sure of this, because Christ our head reigns in heaven on the throne, so will we. I heard one pastor uh, use a, a useful illustration. If you think of a person drowning, if they keep their head above the water, if the head stays above the water, the body survives. It's true for us. Same is true for us because Christ our head has entered into the heavenly places and sat down on His throne, so will His body. One day, our true and better Adam, the one who has ascended the mountain of the Lord, the one who has gone ahead of us as a forerunner, will welcome us into His heavenly glory and we will be seated with Him on His throne. Listen to these words from Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. Jesus says, The one who conquers... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. We will reign with him. Death is dead. Love has won. Christ has conquered. And because the head reigns, so will the body. Since through Jesus' ascension and session, among other things, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, gifts for ministry and maturity, the promise of a place in glory, the intercession, the prayers of our great high priest and share in Christ's throne. How then should we live? This is what I want us to think about as we conclude. And I'll be honest with you, it's not one of my brief conclusions. The scriptures, they give us two clear exhortations in connection with Jesus' ascension and session. So in Colossians chapter 3, Verses 1 and 2, we hear the first exhortation. Listen carefully. Listen to Paul carefully. Listen to God's exhortation to you through the apostle. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. This is what God wants you to do. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Too often... I've heard Christians warn not to be too heavenly minded because you'll be of no earthly good. That is false. If you are to be of any earthly good, you must be heavenly minded. If you are to be of any earthly good, you must be heavenly minded. Seek the things that are above. Set your mind on the things that are above, says the inspired apostle. Dear Christian, give yourself to diligently reading God's word, seeing the glories of Christ, and setting your mind in heaven where Christ is seated. Study, meditate upon God's word. Give yourself to praying to God, thinking about your home in heaven with Him. Pray with God's people about your hope in glory. Join us tonight for prayer. Christian, give yourself not to the things of this world, but to setting your mind upon the one who reigns over the world. We cannot be content with a kind of Christianity that is just enough and is just free of the world enough that we're going to make it home, that we're, we're going to be saved and escape hell. No, we have to have a kind of Christianity that is pursuing Christ over the things of this world. 
I'm reminded of, um, of the words of, of, of Peter. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. We should think upon these things. I'm reminded too of the, the hymnist George Peppercorn, who declared this, The world with wanton pride exalts its sinful pleasures, and for them foolishly gives up the heavenly treasures. Let others love the world with all its vanity. I love the Lord my God. What is the world to me? The world abideth not, nor like a flash twill vanish. Pale de- with all its gorgeous pomp, pale death, it cannot banish. Its riches pass away, and all its joys must flee. But Jesus doth abide. What is the world to me? What is the world to me? My Jesus is my treasure, my life, my health, my wealth, my friend, my love, my pleasure, my joy, my crown, my all, my bliss eternally. Once more then I declare, what is the world to me? Oh, brothers and sisters, remember that Jesus is more. Christ is all. He's more than all the world. In view of Christ's ascension and session, while you are down here, Seek the things that are up there, Paul says. Prepare for your own ascension to glory. Christ has paved the way. You will go where He has gone. So prepare yourself to going to that place. Set your mind on heavenly things. Give less time, thought, and treasure to the world. Give more time, thought, and treasure to the Lord. That's the first exhortation that we're given in the Scriptures in connection with Jesus' ascension and session. Here's the second. Hold on to your confession and draw near to Christ. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. That's on page 1003 of the Bibles provided. And here's what I want you to notice as we read these verses. Jesus' heavenly session is what motivates us to hold fast to our confession and to draw near when we're in need. Read Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16 now. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Beloved, think about this as we conclude. Since we have a great high priest in Jesus Christ, let's hold on to him and draw near to him. His throne is gracious. His mercy is mighty. His help more than meets our needs. In the days ahead, Satan will tempt you to despair. The world will threaten and allure you. Your own flesh will tell you that you will not make it home. But you have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Hold on to him and he will drag you to glory. He has gone to his throne and he is determined to bring you all the way home. Let's praise God for our high priest now in prayer. Let's pray together.